Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Women composers should be heard as well as seen. An Atlanta Symphony principal harpist, Elizabeth Remy Johnson, is on a quest to ensure that. Later this hour, we'll hear some wonderful music as she takes us on that quest. The title of her new recording. First, usually when we hear what keeps you up all night, it's a question about anxiety or worries. For teenagers, up all night can refer to a special time that feels entirely their own. Up All Night is the title of a new collection of stories with teenage protagonists. Young adult author Laura Silverman edited the book, and she joins us now via Zoom. Laura, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here to talk about the book. The book contains 13 stories. How did you decide which to include? When I had this idea for the anthology, I knew that there was so much potential with it. And I really wanted to incorporate enough authors that we could tackle all sorts of subjects because the middle of the night can offer anything from romances to ghost stories. So I wanted to be sure we had enough stories to really run the gamut. Did you ask for submissions? I'm curious about how you arrived at the 12 authors whose stories you include. Absolutely. So I really wanted to make sure that the collection was diverse. So I wanted a range of not only genres, so not only writers who wrote thrillers and romances and everything in between, but I also wanted to make sure that we were representing a variety of different races, religions, abilities, sexualities. And so that was a component and deciding the contributor list. But more importantly, I went to authors who I admire. I reached out to authors who I myself love reading their novels. And I was lucky enough that these amazing, prolific writers agreed to write a story for the collection. Oh, great. I thought we might touch upon four of the stories, starting with Shark Bait by Tiffany D. Jackson. 
The setting is in Martha's Vineyard, an elite resort community off the coast of Massachusetts. What themes does Jackson explore in this story? Honestly, they're all my favorite stories. <laughs> this was really a standout one. Jackson is an incredible writer, and she explored a lot of different themes in the stories. I know that she has talked before about how Martha's Vineyard was a retreat for African-American people to kind of get away, but she also noted that there is racism everywhere, and she wanted to explore that subject of a Black girl alone in Martha's Vineyard trying to make her way. Hmm. The opening sentences are poetic. She writes, my mother's pain is beautiful. You can see it in the stitching of her Hermes bag, the gold in her Prada sunglasses, the way the sun sparkles off her new diamond tennis bracelet on Katama Beach. Tiffany Jackson is exploring privilege as well as race here. It was a really interesting and complex story because, yes, in addition to her exploring race, she's also just uh, exploring these dynamics between her parents and her shifting family relationships. There's really so much depth and nuance to the story. Yeah. I have to confess, I wasn't sure about the ending. Does the author leave the conclusion up to the reader? I believe so. I believe you know, in many stories, authors like readers to draw their own conclusions. I'm not sure of her intention on that one, but I know I myself have left conclusions up to readers before. What about Your Friends by Brandy Colbert shows how much can change in the course of just a year in the life of teenagers and simultaneously indicating how long a life in the year of a teenager can be. This struck me as a study in awkwardness, writ large, a theme no doubt relatable for young readers. Please tell us a bit about how the story unfolds. This story is really, to me, about a friendship. It's the shifting relationship between two best friends. And I thought it was a really beautiful study of how we grow and change. And we really have to take care of our relationships. They won't just come along on the ride for us. We really have to nurture those relationships and work on them. And I thought it was a beautiful reconciliation story of two best friends. It is. And you don't get the feeling that that's coming because Eleanor, one of the main characters, says, I thought we'd be friends forever. But that's not what the reader encounters in the first part of the story. Not at all. And I, I really love the message of that because it's harder than you would think to hold on to friendships. And I love the message that you have to work for them a little bit and that friendships, not just romantic relationships, are worth really putting that effort into. Yeah. 
you explore friendship in depth in your story that's included in this collection, Creature Capture. You reflect on friendship in its different forms and how it evolves. Take us through Creature Capture, if you would, please. So Creature Capture is a story that is inspired by the app Pokemon Go, if anyone remembers playing that back in the day. It's this digital GPS activated app where you could go catch Pokemon in real life. And so in my story, Creature Capture, you can do the same thing. You can go out into the world and hunt mythical creatures. And my protagonist, Abby, is absolutely obsessed with this app. And she's caught every mythical creature before, except for the Loch Ness Monster that will be available for one night only between sunset and sunrise, of course, which is the theme of the anthology. And so my main character, Abby, is really bent on finding this Loch Ness monster to complete her collection. But the story is really also an examination of gaining self-confidence, social anxiety, trying to form new friendships. Abby feels quite lost. She only has one close friend, Curtis, and they're going to be graduating soon and moving on to college. And she's worried about forming new friendships and being true to herself. And so while the story has this cover of a really fun game, it's also a deeper examination of how to put yourself out there and make friends. Yeah. yeah I love what she says in talking about friends she had in middle school and how they are now in high school. She says, I don't judge them. I just don't get them. And I was thinking that could be a mantra for teenagers. Don't you agree? I believe so. I feel like growing up, I was fed a lot of narratives that if you were an outcast, it was because the other people were mean or bullying or something of the sort. And I just don't think that's always necessarily true. I feel like a lot of us are all just finding ourselves and we all have such unique personalities and we want to be able to fit in and find our people. And it's more difficult than you would think. And so you have to take that risk and put yourself out there. I love this story, Under Our Masks by an Atlanta writer, Julian Winters. He is a young adult author of LGBT fiction. Is it unusual for men to write YA books? No, I don't believe it's unusual at all. There are a lot of really incredible male young adult authors. This collection is certainly has a majority of female authors in it, and that's just how it wound up. Julian Winters is truly an incredible writer and an incredible person. I know him personally, and it was such a joy to work with him on this collection, and his story absolutely blew me away. Oh, it's wonderful, and I love his description of the city here. Atlanta feels like an old hooded sweatshirt, one size too small from constant washing, a hole in the sleeve, 
the drawstrings uneven, but it's always comfortable and warm. Even with all the chaos, this city's comfortable and warm. I got that feeling from this story. Absolutely. This story is just so soft and warm and magical. It deals with superheroes, which I was not expecting at all when I gave out the prompt for this collection, but I thought it worked so beautifully because it was yet again another metaphor for characters finding themselves being true to themselves. And I could picture this story so perfectly. It was very cinematic on an Atlanta rooftop. I really could read an entire novel of it. (laughs) Yeah, cinematic is a great description because we're so drawn into the, the scene and the sweetness of the two characters. Would you talk about that? The the romance and the story was just so sweet and genuine. I felt like the characters were these incredibly fleshed out people. And throughout the story, you could really tell why they liked each other and why they connected with each other. The romance was so very clear on the page and I was rooting for them the entire time. Very much so. In addition to the romance of these two young guys who, neither of whom have come out before, there's also a theme of family responsibility that Julian takes on here with Julian's obligations that he feels to his heritage and his relatives. Absolutely. I think that's a really wonderful thing to explore in the young adult world, because as teenagers, we're not only starting to discover who we are, but we're also starting to become aware of our family as real people. I feel like when you're a little kid, your parents are superheroes in your eyes. And as you get older, you see them as real people who not only support you, but, you know, also need support back. Laura, young adult literature is appealing to people of many ages. In fact, many adults who are not young or teenagers. Why do you think the form is ideal Young adult novels are, you know, also commonly called coming of age novels. And I personally love to write for this age group because your teenage years are just so tumultuous. There's so many changes that happen in such quick succession, constantly trying to not only figure out who you are, but figuring out how the world works around you, what your place is in it. And I find that really rich material to explore. Of course, plenty of things happen to us as adults as well. But when you're a teenager, they're happening so quickly and you also feel it so intensely. I know as a reader, when I was a teenager, when I read a book, I just would fall into the world so deeply and feel every emotion so strongly. And I feel like it's just the best age to write about. Young adult author Laura Silverman is the editor of Up All Night, coming-of-age short stories, exploring how one late night can change the course of everything. 
more information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, on a quest to hear more music of female composers, harpist Elizabeth Remy Johnson takes us through her new recording. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's fair to say that Atlanta Symphony principal harpist Elizabeth Remy Johnson has been on a quest throughout her career to make great music available to many and accessible to young students from diverse backgrounds. Her recent quest is a recording with that name. The entire album features music by women composers. Elizabeth Remy Johnson joins us now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. I appreciate having the chance to speak with you this morning. Your work as principal harpist of the Atlanta Symphony is a demanding full-time job. You also teach, play chamber music, perform with other orchestras when asked. Why was it important for you to find time to create this recording? Well, it was a bunch of different factors that all came together at once. Some of the music I had already started becoming familiar with. For example, I had included two Melbourneese transcriptions on a recent concert, and I really had started to delve into the composers that we have ignored for too long, that we never see on a concert program. There's an extreme bias, as I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with when they go to a concert. Chances are that the composers listed are all men. Chances are they are all white men. And I think it's important for all of us, performers and audience members and anybody who loves music or quite frankly, any field to make sure that more voices are being listened to and presented and appreciated. So this was a project I'd already started a little bit on with the searching for composers and the transcriptions. And then in March of 2020, I'm sure we're all familiar with what happened and in particular, what affected my daily life was not going to the symphony regularly. Usually we have rehearsals almost every weekday, two or three concerts a week with a different program every week. So all of a sudden I had all of this time available from what was normally symphony recording or performing or preparation and a bunch of half-started projects delving into these women composers. So first I started recording one selection a month of a piece that I had newly transcribed or a piece that I had found online that was new to me just to try to get the music out there. And I started off by calling that the evening standard. (laughs) Would you explain how that appears in print? Sure. So that's evening, even hyphen ing standard. (laughs) And I call it a project to even out and open up the concept of standard repertoire. And 
the genesis of that project was actually one of my February 2020 recitals that we got in um, right before everything shut down. And afterwards, a friend, a harpist friend said to me, oh, I loved the program, but do you ever play the standard repertoire? And I took a moment and then I thought, well, that's the whole point. This should have been <laughs> standard repertoire all along. And so with the project, I started trying to get the music out there. I am publishing some of my transcriptions, but then as the pandemic extended, I started thinking, you know, I really, I've got enough here. At that point, it was just a half an hour, but I thought I really, really want to record this on an album. And then Facebook of all things presented another opportunity. I was scrolling through in June of 2020 and Elaine Martone, who's the Telarc producer, former Telarc producer who was a producer on so many Atlanta Symphony Orchestra recordings, happened to put this funny post of a strawberry pie that coincidentally my daughter and I had just baked the same pie with the caption, does anybody need a really good producer, like a really, really good producer? And because we were all spinning our wheels with none of our usual creative activity going on. And I thought, well, I know she's joking and I know she's a really, really big deal, but I'll just go ahead and, and email her and see if she might be up for this project. And she was really open to it, really enthusiastic about it really patient with me as it basically doubled its size over the next few months. And she's been a wonderful, wonderful partner to have on this. You mentioned transcription. The music on this album originally was written for piano, so you had to transcribe it for harp. Would you explain what that entails? Sure. So about half of the pieces on the album are transcriptions. All of the historic composers were, the pieces were originally written for piano. So when I transcribe something from piano to harp, I have to make sure that it's going to still sound like the piece as the composer intended it. So some things are going to work great. Some things are not going to work well. And if I, at any point, even if I've spent hours working on it, I really try to have the discipline to make that call. And the, the ones that don't work are not on this album. And what makes a piece work on the harp versus on the piano has to do with the way the strings of the harp vibrate and how we go from musical key to musical key. So for example, Amy Beach was a fantastic pianist. When I was reading through her anthology of piano works, if I saw one that had all this big, bombastic, exciting stuff in the lowest registers with lots of repeated notes, even as fun as that might be for a pianist to play, that's going to be a big buzzy mess on the harp. <laughs> so a piano, the pedals on the piano, let the notes ring. On the harp, our notes ring a really long time, especially the bass notes. And we have to do a second action called muffling to stop that ringing. So something like that in small portions can be worked around, but if it's the main point of the piece, it's simply not going to work on the harp. And the other thing that can be a deal breaker also has to do with pedals. 
The harp has seven pedals, but they change the notes from sharp to flat. So when you look at the strings of the harp, if you can imagine a piano keyboard, it's almost like just seeing the white keys of the piano. So we do we use pedals to make those half steps or those little steps between the notes. So if I'm going from E flat major to E major, I have seven pedals I have to change. So something like the Lily Boulanger piece that weaves in and out of keys, that took a lot of rewriting using something we call enharmonics. So for example, I wouldn't be playing a D sharp, I'd be playing an E flat, kind of like a homonym. It sounds the same, but I would have a different pedal setting to weave in and out of the keys before and after. sometimes come up with a solution. Sometimes it might take a long time to come up with a solution. So it has to do with the strings and the pedals that can um, make or break a transcription. Very good lesson in <laughs> harp transcription. Let's talk more about the repertoire. The recording contains new works by living composers along with music from the 19th and 20th centuries. You mentioned Amy Beach. She was an American composer and a wonderful pianist. The piece you play by Amy Beach has the evocative title of A Hermit Thrush at Morn. Would you take us through it? Sure, I will. Amy Beach actually wrote about this piece. It's a really charming little story she tells. She heard this hermit thrush at the McDowell colony in New Hampshire, which was an artist colony that still is in existence. They go by the name McDowell now. One morning she heard this hermit thrush. And so she basically took dictation. She said she worked as hard as any stenographer and wrote down <laughs> exactly what he was singing he or she, let's be clear, and she would play it to the bird and the bird would sing back to her. And so out of that, that's the introduction and the closing of the piece. And then she does all of these fantastic explorations of the melody and introduces different themes throughout. And it's a lovely piece and a lot of fun to play. Oh, it's beautiful. Does music of Niloufar Nurbakhsh have pride of place on this recording? Well, she's one of the more recent composers that I've gotten to know. And one of the things that is so wonderful about the world we live in now, though it, the, it certainly has its detractions, but we can get in touch with 
all of these composers so easily. I was just hopping around the internet and came across her piece and really loved it and emailed her and introduced myself and said, would you be open to me transcribing this for her? She was, she's been lovely to work with. And with her, she's the only one of the modern composers where the piece is a transcription. And so I would play something, make a small home recording, email it to her and get her feedback. And she would say stuff like, I would really like to hear this note come out more. And so then I would, for example, double it, play it with an octave. So we made little tweaks together. And that process was really fulfilling and also sort of encapsulates what I try to do with the historic composers to use my imagination to think about what they wanted to hear when they composed the piece and if they would like hearing it on harp. So many of them were also pianists. They all played piano. Some were exceptional pianists like Clara Schumann. And if I'm working on a transcription and I can't answer that question in a positive way, if I can't say, oh, I, I think she would really like to hear this on harp, then I'm not going to pursue it. It has to still be their voice and their message. And so working with Nilufar was a real treat to have a modern day interaction like that. And then the other reason that it's included and included first is because I asked all of the contemporary composers to approve or contribute a short sentence or two about their work. And when I got to know Nilofar's piece, I had no idea that the title came from her quest to decide whether she wanted to be a composer or not. She had been to a summer festival. She had been accepted as a pianist. She started pursuing composition more and more, and she was truly wrestling with whether or not she wanted to pursue that as her musical direction rather than piano. And all of these women, especially the historic women, had those moments where they they really had to commit to, to make this their path. A lot of them had really big obstacles put in their way. And they all really, really made it work. And the other thing I like about having Nilufar's piece first is it's very chromatic, very exploratory. There's a lot of back and forth, but the key she ends up in transitions so beautifully into the Chaminade, which is a simple, lovely, elegant depiction of sunrise. given careful thought to the way each track sets up the next or a certain affinity that a p 
particular piece has for the one that comes after it. Absolutely. That's one thing I really love, whether it's designing a solo recital or in this case, putting together a recording. It's kind of like arranging a bouquet. Everything has to be balanced. Different spots have to pop with light and complement each other. It's, it, it's a very fun process to put together repertoire. Elizabeth Ramey Johnson is the principal harpist for the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Her new release is Quest, which features music of female composers. We'll return to more of our preview of that new recording in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to more of my conversation with the Atlanta Symphony principal harpist, Elizabeth Remy Johnson. Here, she talks about new music from a long-gone composer, the 19th century French composer Mel Bonis. Her works are part of Elizabeth's new recording, Quest. Okay, so I have to just admit, I am a Malbonis super fan. I think she's absolutely wonderful. I do a lot of exploring to find these composers, and this is going to sound like one of the most unlikely sources, but I scroll through Twitter when I do my warm-ups. And wait, <laughs> wait, you are warming up, but multitasking by catching up on tweets. Yeah. So here's the thing. <laughs> I do one hand at a time because that's the best way to warm up. But I follow all of these artists and athletes and ballerinas I really admire. So I kind of use that for my artistic inspiration as well. And then I follow a lot of accounts of people promoting women in music, people extolling composers in music. There are people who have feature a composer a week uh, or a composer a day of historic composers that we may not know about or modern composers and what they're up to. It sounds like just about the craziest and worst misuse of time, but it's, it's really informative. And I have a pad of paper by the harp and I write down the, the names that I'm not familiar with and the ones I want to look up. And one day it was Mel Bonis and I thought, well, I've never heard of this person. And then I remembered at the Rio Harp Festival, I heard a trio play a piece by Mel Bonis and I had remembered the name, but I had no idea it was a woman. And that's sort of what she was working with. That's why she changed her name from Melanie to Mel so that she wouldn't be rejected 
that because she was a woman in the early 20th century. So I had found some of her piano music, done two transcriptions, and then with this um, extra time of spring 2020, I started reading her biography written by her great granddaughter. And it's an amazing book and talks about her path to music. She was a very talented young girl in a lower middle class French family. They had a piano in the house. This was late 1800s, but they certainly didn't expect her to play it or want to study it. But she came to the attention of César Franck, a very famous French organist and professor at the Paris Conservatory. He talked her parents into letting her attend the Paris Conservatory. So she did, studying piano and composition. And they still have records of, from the Paris Conservatory at that time. And she was classmates with Claude Debussy. And her professors literally say, Mel Bonis, she's brilliant. She's wonderful. And then about Debussy, they say, he's a little lazy. <laughs> so her conservatory career was going great, but she fell in love with this poet singer type. Her parents found out and they yanked her out of the Paris conservatory immediately because it was enough that she was studying music, but they were not going to have her align herself with this poet type musician. It was not what they had in mind for their daughter. So they found a lovely man, a widower, twice widowed, five sons of his own. She was about 20. She, he was twice her age. And they said, Mel, Melanie, here you go. This is your life now. You're marrying this man. They were a very devout Catholic family, and she was obedient, and she married him, and they had three children of their own, and then once they got to a certain age, and she had a little more time for herself, she started composing again, and basically, she lived two lives. She was Madame de Mange, the wife, the mother, and um, they were very wealthy, prominent French family. On the other side, she composed all of these beautiful, beautiful works. Her family has her letters where she'd be scribbling to publishers about trying to negotiate a good contract for herself. She kept diaries and expresses frustration when she can't get a good venue for a performance. And her music was loved by some, but it certainly didn't get the broad acclaim that it absolutely deserves. And near the end of her life, she said to one of her younger daughters that not hearing her music performed was one of the greatest sorrows of her life. So here you are leading the Melbonis revival. Actually, her great-granddaughter and her grandchildren are leading the revival. They have been working tirelessly in France to support transcriptions, or in my case, they've been, her great-granddaughter's been very supportive, uh, actually has arranged for Biodot, the publishing house in France, to publish three of the harp transcriptions. It's just, it's such a beautiful mission they have to make sure that her music doesn't disappear. Even though I had no idea of Melbonis until about two years ago, they really have been working to get her name and her music out there.
And it's it's wonderful, wonderful music. I I really love it. And I was talking with a friend just the other day, and he said, you know, I was having a terrible day. And then I listened to Desdemona several times, and it just it made me feel better. And to me, that's the whole point of it. This this album isn't an academic exercise to present women composers. It's because this music is beautiful and it's there and it has been there and it just hasn't been played. Hmm. Among the works by living composers, I was especially drawn to the music here by Kati Agash. What's the story of John Riley from Every Lover is a Warrior? So that is the first movement of a larger suite. And I always love music with a story. And that is an Appalachian folk song that some people may be familiar with. It was sung by a lot of the folk singers of the 70s. And Kati presents the melody at the beginning, but then works this wonderful harp fantasy around that melody. to know the the story that's in the song? Sure. (laughs) Okay, so there's this beautiful woman tending a garden and this man comes along and says, hey, he recognizes her. He's been gone for seven years at war. He decides to test her love for him. They had been promised to be married before he left for war. And he says to her, you're beautiful. Why, Why don't we get married? And she, <laughs> as one does, that's a good reason. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right? right. And she says, No, no, I'm waiting for my true love, John Riley. And the soldier, who she has not recognized yet, says, Well, where is he? And she says, Well, he's been at war for seven years. And so the soldier says, Well, you know, he, he could have been lost at sea could have been killed in battle. He could have found someone else. And then she says, no, I am waiting for my own true love, my John Riley. At each question, she holds firm. And then at the end, he reveals his identity and they ride off into the sunset. It's a lovely little story, but when Kati and I were working on the piece together, I had to say, you know, Kati, I'm not sure I would have gone off into the sunset with him after that trick. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Try to pull that after he gets back is not would not have won any points with me. No. But anyway, it's a lovely piece that she's created from that one melody. Like Amy Beach with the Hermit Thrush song, Kati weaves in the melody throughout as she goes to all of these different places throughout the piece. It's it's a lovely work. When I think about the 19th century pianist and composer Clara Schumann. What pops into my mind is that wonderful quote from the late Texas Governor Ann Richards about Ginger Rogers, that she did everything Fred Astaire did. She just did it backwards and in high heels. Clara Schumann has been known 
mainly as the wife of composer Robert Schumann, 19th century German composer, but in her lifetime, she had an astonishing career as a touring concert pianist while being a mother of five children and deserves recognition as a composer in her own right. Why did you choose this particular piece, Romance, by Clara Schumann? Well, you know, Clara, she was primarily, and she recognized herself primarily as a concert pianist. And she was famous from a very young age doing concert tours throughout Europe really as a child. And when she married Robert, she was by far the more known of the two. And her father was really not pleased that she was going to marry Robert Schumann, was not at all in favor of it. But they worked together quite a bit. She was not just his muse, but they would talk about compositional ideas. They would work on counterpoint projects together. Because at that time, it was really the standard for a concert pianist to also include his or her own improvisations and own compositions. So it was a very natural thing for Clara to do. But as Robert's composing career really took off, her own composing kind of receded and she would compose some. But when he was composing, she couldn't even practice in the house. And she wrote to a friend my piano playing is falling behind. It always does when Robert is composing, which makes sense because if he's trying to create melodies in his mind and harmonies, he can't have something else going on in the house. So she really had to create a balance to make their home life work. And then after he died quite young, she didn't compose anymore after that. She put all of her energy into maintaining her solo career to support their children and to creating official editions of his work and to creating professorships for herself to bring in more income through teaching to support their large family. So this piece is one of her piano solos. It's really lovely. The outer sections have a beautiful plaintiff melody that's just captivating it really draws you in and then in the middle section I like this is another one where I always keep in mind that the composer was also a pianist I really like to imagine Clara's left hand kind of flying over the keys as it weaves in and out of chromaticism in the more active middle section so I included it because I love the way it sounds and I also love the way it feels to play it. Schumann stood for. People would call her the high priestess of music, of piano, and they said that though you might find someone to equal her technically, you will never find someone to surpass her artistically. So she must have been just exquisite to listen to. And she also, 
Another reason I love Clara Schumann is she was plagued by self-doubt. She was famously very good friends with Brahms and she would write to him saying, oh, I have this performance coming up. I just don't know if I can do it. And she held herself to the highest standards after a performance, she would just be distraught if one little thing didn't go right. And I also love Clara Schumann because she was so smart and savvy. Like I told you, she kept her family afloat. So she supported them on her own after Robert died. And also when Brahms was a young composer, the couple was friendly with him. And at one point she said, hey, you know, Johannes, why are you just saving your mon money under your bed? Why don't you invest it? And he said, well, uh, okay, but could you help me? And so she did. And his investments did way better with her than when he got a professional financial advisor later. So all of these letters um, exist. I read a really, really interesting biography of Clara Schumann a year or two ago, and uh, just loved getting to know her as a person, too. Maybe it's fair to say she was even a greater achiever than Ginger Rogers, do you think? There's certainly a lot to admire about her. Oh, oh yes. Elizabeth, there's an informative component to this recording. You provide biographical details, comments in the composer's own words, and for the reading recommendations. How are you continuing your quest? Part of the reason I wanted to give the histories and the suggestions for more reading is because there's so much more to discover. There, this isn't an end point. This is what I found through November of 2020. And if I had to do it again today, there were probably at least five more pieces that jump right to mind that I would want to put on it. So I'm not done and I don't think any of us should be done. It's really amazing how much we can find now with the tools that we have at our disposal, connections that we would not have been able to make even 10 or 20 years ago. So it's not that the music doesn't exist, it's just we might have to work a little harder to find it and to create the demand for it to be found. And one of the things that I try to get across when I have a concert or I'm talking about this album, not just a music, it's, it's in every field where contributions by women and people of color have been not promoted in any way, shape or form. And there's so much that we lose when we're not listening to everyone. Atlanta Symphony Principal Harpist, Elizabeth Remy Johnson. Her new release is titled Quest, and the album features music by women composers. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the Bookstore, the new documentary about independent bookstores, begs the question, 
When is paying a little more for something worth it, and why? City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. Special thanks to Kevin Rinker. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Come on board. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.